Dramatic video of a targeted shooting. The gunman picks the right house at the wrong time, terrifying the new owners. New details in the murder of Ramina Shaw. I've been a passionate real estate investor for the last seven years. Signs of financial trouble and her cryptic message about revenge. And fighting the urge to flee. I have two children, one age nine and one age five, and they are desperate to see Disneyland. Families delay plans for spring break travel with so much COVID uncertainty coming home. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening. Thanks for joining us. Sophie is off tonight. When shots rang out in a Surrey neighborhood on Monday, no one knew the shooter was recording it as he peppered a home and vehicles with bullets. He had no chance of hitting his intended target because the home was sold and a new family had already moved in. Kamal Kuramali joins us now live with the video. And Kamal, a member of the family, the grandmother, was nearly hit in this shooting. A very, very close call, Chris. So in the early morning hours, the gunman stood where I'm standing right now, shot seven bullets towards the living room right there. You can see a glass pane there completely blown out because of the bullets. The gunman also shot several times at a vehicle that was in the driveway here. You can see a bullet hole in the garage door still. And in a surprising move, this a video of the shooting was, was posted on social media. A gunman shooting up a vehicle parked outside a Surrey home. Shared on TikTok, the text in the video appears to threaten a popular Punjabi musician. And a note left behind warning that they're going to target his friends' homes all over the world, including this one in Surrey. These old the gunshots. But the thing is, the homeowner says he has nothing to do with the intended target. It's really hard, man. It's totally scary. Sukjit Garcha was woken up just before 3 a.m. early Wednesday morning to the sound of gunfire. F- families are uh, shocking too. Yeah. yeah. This, this, this scared now. My kids are really scared. One, two, three. He went downstairs to find seven bullet holes pierced through the balcony window and walls. One through his garage door and several into his vehicle parked outside. He's owned this place for only four months and lives here with his wife, three daughters, his father and grandmother. None of them were injured. Is it a miracle that nobody was injured? Uh, yeah, it's a miracle, yeah. But it was close. His grandmother sleeping on the couch that night, and just on the other side of this window, the gunman was shooting up the vehicle. Guys was in the driveway shooting the, our cars, and then after that, if, if he hit this window, she would have been dead. She thinks somebody fell or my, my wife fell on the uh, yeah. stairs and she think about that. She didn't notice a gunshot. Police say the intended target was likely the home's previous owner, but it's not related to the current lower mainland gang conflict. This homeowner has a message for the gunman. If somebody is with uh, gang related or something, target them, not, not the innocent families, because we're uh, working and paying the mortgage and everything, right? 
and now the police continue their investigation. They've taken in the vehicle that was shot up, the note left behind, as well as surveillance video from this home, all as evidence. Meanwhile, uh, Chris, the homeowner says he's not sure as of now whether him and his family will continue to live here, but for, so far tonight, they do not feel safe living in this home. Back over to you. Close call for sure. All right, thanks very much, Kamal, Kamal Kuramali in Surrey. Surrey. The search continues for the killer of a 32-year-old realtor and mother of three in Coquitlam. Romina Shaw was stabbed to death last week. No one has been arrested and no charges have been laid. And as Kristen Robinson reports, new revelations raise some new questions about a possible motive. A floral memorial continues to grow in the Coquitlam Parkade where Romina Shaw was stabbed on January 27th. The 32-year-old mother of three young children died in hospital. Hey guys, welcome to my beautiful family home. I'm Romina Shaw. A new realtor, Shaw was active on social media and described by her colleagues as an outgoing personality, loved by everyone. Homicide investigators say they're still tracking possible motives for her murder. Court documents first revealed by the Vancouver Sun show the B.C. government once tried to seize the home Shaw owned with her ex-husband Bobby and three vehicles. The province's allegations, which have never been proven, included that Bobby used various false identities to get people to cash fake checks on his behalf. The province's director of civil forfeiture alleged the house, recently assessed at $2.8 million dollars, and the motorcycle, Land Rover and Porsche were obtained through the proceeds of crime and used for illegal activity, including fraud and drug trafficking. In response to the civil claim, Shaw and her ex denied the allegations and said the property was not used for any illegal activity. The lawsuit was dismissed last April with the consent of all parties involved. The Public Safety Ministry says the civil forfeiture director cannot comment on why it was tossed out. The home is now solely owned by Bobby Shaw. On January 28th, an RCMP SUV was seen parked in the driveway. IHID says it cannot comment on any leads in Shaw's murder as it would jeopardize the investigation. But early evidence suggests it is not connected to gangs or criminal activity. Shaw posted a cryptic message on Instagram 10 days before her murder. Be careful when it comes to revenge. Negative energy is a powerful force, and the more you put out in the world, the more comes back on you. I never wish ill on anyone, even those trying to hurt me. Kristen Robinson, Global News. Vancouver police say they've arrested three shoplifters after a violent day downtown. The first incident happened Tuesday morning in a Davie Street grocery store, where VPD say the suspect shoved a clerk aside to get behind the counter to steal cigarettes. A vape store was also robbed in the same area. Near Robson and Burrard Streets, police say a suspect went on a spree where he stole hundreds of dollars worth of clothing, then went to a neighboring store to try to get the tags removed before stealing $144 in lipstick from a third store. These three examples are examples where heads up witnesses or victims phone police right away. We were able to respond immediately. We were able to arrest the people we believe are responsible and they will be charged with criminal offenses as a result. Police say shoplifters aren't limited to just downtown. In January, 22 people were arrested in a three-day blitz on the west side. 
and another 15 were arrested in the Renfrew-Collingwood area. A woman has been charged with assault after she allegedly punched a stranger in the face in Marpole. It happened last night near Marine Gateway. Police say the 23-year-old victim was walking by when the suspect asked her for a cigarette, then hit her. Police say the two women were not known to each other and the victim was just minding her own business. 38-year-old Samantha Toledo has been charged with one count of assault. Well, that now infamous wood splitter, purchased with taxpayers' money but kept at the home of the former legislature clerk, was the focus of testimony today. Former clerk Craig James is facing charges of fraud and breach of trust. But as Grace Key reports, a former facilities manager there told the court it wasn't James's idea to buy it, it was his. After watching Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico back in 2017, then-facility manager Randy Spraggett suggested buying the now infamous wood splitter. If a natural disaster cut off power, the wood splitter could be used to remove damaged trees or for creating firewood for small fires designed to provide warmth to staff in burn barrels. The wood splitter and trailer cost about $13,000. The facility manager bought the items in October 2017. James offered to pick up the items, saving the ledge time and money. When asked by Crown, Spraggett said there was always parking available for the wood splitter and trailer on the legislative grounds, and he did make a couple of attempts to get the items back from James. But a permanent parking spot location on the legislative grounds hadn't been finalized yet. On cross-examination, defense asked, there was a trailer and it was at the clerk's house because at that time there was no place to put it on the legislative precinct. Right, replied Spraggett. It's not a secret the clerk had these things at his house at that time. No. Crown then asked, who between the two of you had the authority to say it's going to be parked here, period? That would be Mr. James. The wood splitter would remain at the James residence for about a year. The now retired deputy sergeant at arms, Randall Ennis, said he didn't think the purchase of the wood splitter and the trailer made much sense. He is going to be continuing his testimony on Thursday. In Vancouver, Grace Key, Global News. It's been more than a decade since a B.C. realtor was murdered while showing a home in Saanich, and the search for answers continues. Why do we have to do this? Because there isn't justice. Today marks the 14th anniversary of Lindsay Buziak's death. Loved ones are remembering the 24-year-old with a memorial walk, carrying signs calling for arrests in her murder. Police believe two people pretended to be interested in buying the home and lured the realtor into showing it alone. I will do this walk if I have to in as many years as it takes and as long as I am able to do it. I will be here each and every year reminding the authorities that they need to do their job. Let's get on with it. Last year, a new task force, including the FBI, RCMP, and Saanich Police, was launched to continue the investigation into the cold case. Anyone who has any information about Lindsay's murder is asked to contact Saanich Police. There's some good news and some bad news when it comes to our latest COVID-19 numbers. Hospital numbers have dropped down to 988 patients. 136 of those are in the ICU. Now, the bad news. There have been 18 more deaths, including one person in their 50s. We're just shy of 26,000 active cases, and that includes 1,776 new infections. 
Now, spring break is usually a popular time for many B.C. families to head somewhere warm. With the school break coming up next month, there are many things to think about and prepare for compared to travel before the pandemic. Richard Zussman has more on what to expect. Erin McDonald is looking at a spring break to remember for her family. I have two children, one age nine and one age five, and they are desperate to see Disneyland. But like so much, it may be derailed by COVID. Her family contracted the virus last month, but because they were not for a government PCR test, there's no official record, especially important now for travel, because people can go in and out of Canada without a test up to 180 days post-infection. Unfortunately, because we weren't aware of um, some of the existing rules around having positive PCR tests and having that be an exemption for us, we weren't able to complete those results. There are clinics like this one where you can pay for a PCR test, but the catch-22 is when you are positive with COVID, you're not supposed to go into a clinic like this. So there's a call to make the results from a rapid test like this equivalent to the results of a PCR test. Ideally, it would have been nice if um, there would have been some kind of honoring for uploading those particular results and giving our medical information. Right now, international travel is not advised from Canada, but there is a likelihood that could change before spring break. We have had ongoing discussions about the border measures and what tests are required when and why, um, and I know they are reviewing those um, in the next few weeks. On top of a requirement to be fully vaccinated, travellers right now must provide a negative COVID test upon arriving in Canada. Some countries require a negative test upon entry, and if you happen to test positive while travelling, you can't return to Canada for at least 11 days. I always recommend getting travel insurance. I have for years, but this is more important now because if you get COVID while you're away, you're going to incur costs. And then there's the issue of even accessing a test while abroad. I'm hearing people that are down there cannot get tests. They can't get appointments for tests. Mm -hmm. They have problems. They don't get their results in time. They miss their flights. And I'm not going to take that chance. Uncertainty and policies making travel planning nearly impossible and keeping families like Aaron McDonald's grounded for a little longer. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. The B.C. housing forecast and why it doesn't hold a lot of hope for bargains. It's the same old story about supply and demand, but maybe the solution is in Seattle. What they're doing that seems to work so much better. Next on the news hour, The end driver who really blew it, going way too fast, isn't the only reason he's in big trouble. That's later on the news hour. And the day of reckoning that didn't work out the way Aaron O'Toole had hoped. Why he is out as Conservative Party leader and who steps in, at least temporarily. Right now, though, the latest forecast for B.C.'s housing market has some modest good news for potential buyers over the next couple of years. But it also says a low supply will continue to force prices up. As Ted Chernecki reports, one analyst places the blame for that squarely on government with a comparison to Seattle. You might look around and think there's a lot of housing being built, but in fact, there isn't, not relatively. New research suggests housing starts in B.C. have actually been declining. Between 2020 and 2025, an estimated 20,000 planned units disappeared. This is huge from already low levels. In Vancouver's case, many were lost in red tape. 
He says you just need to look to Seattle, where housing starts there are almost double per capita. Seattle also has no uh, rent control, no vacancy tax, no speculation tax, no school tax, no rental only zoning, none of that bureaucracy and, and, and taxes. Instead, um, it's easier to build in Seattle. And the outcome is very apparent. Economists aren't surprised with how very lopsided this housing market is. It was foreseeable that we wouldn't have the supply, but we really haven't done enough to focus on getting new supply to market quickly. Fortunately, we're seeing more focus on supply now. We're just a few years too late. The latest BC real estate forecast predicts housing sales will drop 17% this year and 12% next year, while prices go up by 8.5% this year and 2.7% next year. Prices now so high, residents won't list because there's nowhere for them to go in the Lower Mainland. We're at about 6,000 listings or so, a little under in Vancouver. We need to be around 15,000 to 18,000 for a balanced market where prices are kind of flattening out or growing with inflation. Um, that's going to take a while. And more people are deferring to pay their property taxes. In 2015-16, about 41,000 homeowners chose to pay when they sell. In 2021, that number jumped to 73,000, up 76%. When I see things double in a five-year period, I, I start to get concerned that that's a dangerous trend. People are putting themselves into debt. Interest rates are going to go up. Eventually, housing prices might go down, and, and you're going to be saddled with that debt. He believes this market's been years in the making by bad government tax policies. Ted Chernacki, Global News. Coming up, at war with WestJet. What is WestJet doing with our money? When a ticket refund dispute escalates, Consumer Matters flies in to help. And camping conundrum. More complaints about the website to book your getaway. is steady now at the Massey Tunnel in both directions. A much better option than the Alex Fraser Bridge, which is still recovering from an earlier southbound crash at mid-span. Get best-in-class protection and savings with BCAA Insurance. Learn more at bcaa.com. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Center. It's an ongoing frustration for many travelers fighting with an airline to get a refund. Consumer Matters has more on one passenger's struggle to get her money back, even going to Canada's federal regulator. And Thanks, Chris. Linda Romanuk was initially denied a refund for her WestJet vacations package when the airline canceled her trip due to the pandemic. She tried for months to get her money back, even filing a complaint with the Canadian Transportation Agency, only to end up reaching out to Consumer Matters for help. What is WestJet doing with our money? It's a question Linda Romanek has been asking herself ever since she's been fighting to get a refund. Back in February of 2020, Linda and her husband booked a WestJet vacations package to Aruba. The trip was scheduled for May 2020, but cancelled by WestJet. They emailed and they said, your, your flight is cancelled. Your trip is cancelled because of COVID-19. In September of 2020, Linda says she received a letter from WestJet stating refunds on vacation packages would be returned to WestJet dollars. This is not what I asked for. Linda filed a complaint with the airline regulator, the Canadian Transportation Agency. She says she was shocked by the airline's response. The CTA stating, despite our efforts, WestJet is not willing to address your complaint through the agency's informal dispute resolution process. And I said, this isn't fair. Isn't fair to consumers, isn't fair to people. Frustrated, Linda says she reached out to her credit card company requesting a chargeback, but was told she was out of luck. They blew me off, yeah. 
After months of facing an uphill battle, she turned to Consumer Matters for help. Two days later, the airline notified Linda she would be getting a full refund. WestJet telling Consumer Matters, these guests are eligible for a full refund and we sincerely apologize for the error in communication and for the delay. When Consumer Matters asked about the error in communication, WestJet stated in part, in July of 2021, we updated our scheduled change guidelines to ensure all guests, including WestJet Vacations guests who had been impacted by a WestJet-initiated major schedule change, qualified for a refund to original form of payment. The whole uh, corporate-centric language of we decide whether you, the consumer, is eligible to a refund, I'm finding it appalling. Linda says she's just relieved she can move on with her life now receiving a refund check for over $5,000. It'll be nice to see that check right in the bank. Now, if you're still struggling to get a refund for a flight that was cancelled by the airline, you may be interested to hear BC does have consumer protection laws that could help you get your money back. We'll have more on that story tomorrow. And if you have a consumer issue for me, you can email me at consumermatters at globalnews.ca. Look forward to that. All right, thanks very much, Anne. The camping reservation system British Columbians love to hate is getting a major update, but not soon enough for some people. After gathering feedback for two years, BC Parks is relaunching the Discovery Cam- or sorry, Discover Camping Reservation website at the end of March. John Waugh has the details. It made people's blood boil like getting beat out by concert bots caused the same sinking feeling you get when you fail to sign up your kids for recreational sports. But nothing ignited more anger than trying to book a campsite on discovercamping.ca. Nothing worked. It was very difficult. Um, It was always a disappointment. The province promised it would be a seamless online solution when it made several of its campgrounds reservation only. Instead, hopeful campers were met with constant crashes and glitches. A lot of foul language. You're all sitting there. Okay, we got this, we got this, we got this. And then, gone. The booking website was such a letdown, the BC government is launching a brand new one on March 21st. We heard lots of frustration, lots of complaints, lots of things that we could do better. Better will be found at bcparks.ca. The new site is supposed to have functions, including a queuing system. Unfortunately, none of that can be found yet on the beta version of the website. And if the interface doesn't make sense and doesn't work, that's a, that's a big problem. Campers we spoke to say the new site has to be more user-friendly and guard against third-party reservation sites. There are um, people essentially scraping and botnetting uh, the camping sites. Locals argue the province needs to once again roll out first-come, first-served sites at all BC parks until it proves it can get a booking website right. It was a joke. Like, there's, there's nothing positive to say about it. Nothing worked. And with so much frustration fueled by bad booking memories, there's a lot riding on this new website to get families outdoors to make new ones. John Hua, Global News. Up next, Aaron O'Toole's Day of Reckoning. Canada is in a dire moment of our history. A lot of people might agree with that, but he was still ousted as leader of the Conservatives. So where does the party go now? And growing tension at the site of trucker protests and what police are prepared to do about it. 
Traffic has now eased off eastbound along Highway 1 through Burnaby after a very busy afternoon commute. Just some minor delays now at merge points like Willingdon and Kensington. With BCAA car insurance, it's easy to renew for from ICBC Auto Plan renewals to exclusive savings. Visit BCAA.com today. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Center. An end driver has lost his wheels after he was clocked going 225 kilometers an hour in an 80 zone while drunk. Mounties say the 19-year-old from North Vancouver is facing a bunch of penalties, including a three-month driving ban, 30-day vehicle impoundment, and thousands in fines. The driver was speeding on the Upper Levels Highway near Westview last weekend. RCMP call it an extreme example of recklessness and disregard for the safety of others. Now to the latest on the protest convoy parked in Ottawa. Police have laid charges and continue to investigate. Numbers are way down, but police are gearing up just in case the crowd returns on the weekend. Kyle Benning has the latest, including how public perception of the trucker's message could impact their cause. While the trucks have been sitting idle, people in the convoy are making sure they're heard. Protesters on Parliament Hill realize some in the city might see them as a nuisance. Like I know it's it's the noise and I can understand, but like I don't know how long this is going to last, but try two years of losing your job not knowing if you're going to lose your home. A University of British Columbia professor who is an expert in civil disobedience says it's ultimately whether that message still resonates with the public. Kimberly Brownlee says how well the group can communicate its arguments ultimately will have an impact on how people perceive them. For why a, a city should stay tolerant, should stay committed to, to what you're doing, um, you, because you're, you're, you're pressing on people's goodwill in some ex to some extent. The Ottawa Police Service says the convoy reached its peak on Saturday with between eight and 15,000 people taking part in the demonstration. The police chief sending a warning to those who broke the law. It does not matter how long it takes. We will find those who committed the criminal acts. We will lay charges against them and they will face the possibility of jail as a result of it. He says charges have already been laid in some cases and that officers continue to investigate. The police service says while the protest is now down to several hundred trucks, it is anticipating more people will be back in the capital over the weekend. A former police officer turned professor says agencies have to juggle maintaining the peace while enforcing the law when it comes to crowd management. And it becomes a question of which one are you going to do at a given time, and that comes from being able to read the crowd and understanding the situation and making the appropriate response. Canada Unity posted a video to Facebook noting morale is low, but the main core is there for the long haul. Kyle Benning, Global News. Aaron O'Toole has lost his grip on the federal Conservative Party, ousted as leader by a strong majority of his own MPs, who voted him out in a secret ballot. O'Toole pleaded with them to give him more time, but as our chief political correspondent David Aiken reports, his ideas are not supported by those he's trying to lead. In the end, it wasn't even close. Two-thirds of the 119 MPs in Aaron O'Toole's caucus voted to show him the door. Caucus spoke pretty convincingly, and we're going to move on, and we're going to find a new, new leader. We needed a, a new captain to bring us all together and I think it was time for a change and uh, the majority of our grassroots movement felt that that was uh, needed. 
It wasn't quick. MPs debated for three hours in a virtual closed-door meeting while protesters honked outside their Parliament Hill offices. Insiders say O'Toole spoke twice. He offered to meet with caucus dissidents and move a leadership review that had been scheduled for August 2023 up, but it was to no avail. O'Toole delivered a parting statement on Facebook. Hear the other side. Listen to all voices, not just the echoes from your own tribe. Realize that our country is divided and people are worried. He did not meet reporters Wednesday, nor did he attend question period where, had he done so, he would have heard his chief opponent, the Prime Minister, pay tribute to his work. There is a lot we don't agree on for the direction of this country, but he stepped up to serve his country and I want to thank him for his sacrifice. Thoughts now turn to O'Toole's replacement. I think we have some incredible, great, strong people. Candice Bergen, Michelle Rempel-Gardner, Pierre Polyev. Uh, any other one of those three right now would be uh, my picks. Polyev is an Ontario MP who served in Stephen Harper's cabinet. He's a Conservative fan favourite. We'll see what happens, but uh, I, I hope Pierre Polyev puts his name forward, and if he does, I would support him 100%. The big thing that we need is we need unity in our party right now. That means a bit of a, a, bit of a strong hand at the tiller. But insiders say that until the party's governing National Council sets the rules, sets the spending limits, and crucially, sets a date, it's too early to speculate who will run. But insiders say that until the party's governing National Council sets the rules, spending limits, and most crucially, the date, it's too early to speculate who will run. David Aiken, Global News, Ottawa. And we have, in fact, just learned that Candace Bergen has been elected interim leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. Keith Baldry joins us now for more on how the leadership change could impact the political landscape here in B.C. Keith, what do you see? Yeah, interesting. The Conservatives really are at a crossroads right now. Aaron O'Toole was trying to push the party more to the centre-right on a number of progressive issues. The caucus clearly fought back against that and seemed to favour a push more to the right side of the political spectrum. The problem the Conservatives have right now, that doesn't necessarily work with the changing demographics in our urban and suburban areas. Here's a reminder of what happened just recently in the 2021 election. The Conservatives in B.C. lost four ridings. All of those losses were in Metro Vancouver, in the suburbs of Metro Vancouver. The party now holds just four of 26 urban ridings in British Columbia. The same thing is mirrored in places like Greater Toronto and Greater Montreal. The electoral math doesn't work for the Conservatives right now. That's where all the ridings are. If you want to hold power in this, in this uh, country, you have to win the ridings in the suburbs of Vancouver, the suburbs of Toronto, and the suburbs of Montreal. And right now, a rightward shift for the Conservatives is going to really hamper, I think, their ability to resonate with voters out there. So as I say, at a real crossroads, and depending on who the next leader is, if they shift too far uh, right, I think they're going to hamper their position, their chances of regaining some of the lost turf in areas that right now the Liberals and the NDP are doing far better and at both the provincial and the Liberal uh, and the federal level. So again, the Conservative Party at a crossroads, unlike what we've seen since the 1990s when the Reform Party, of course, blew up the party. Yep. Remember that. Okay. Thanks very much, Keith. The guidance on visitation rights at long-term care homes has changed once again. Residents are now permitted to have one social visitor in addition to their essential visitor. But as Aaron MacArthur reports, loved ones of residents in care say it's too little too late and they're calling for the rules to be eased even further. She was holding our hands and said she couldn't let go because she was terrified that she may not see us again. It's been a month oh, yeah. since Rahel Staley saw her grandma last. 
Restrictions meant visits to her long-term care facility were limited to essential only. That changed Wednesday. Residents now allowed one essential visitor and one social visitor. But Rahel worries it's come too late to help the seniors who have lived through this pandemic. Too little, yes, absolutely too late. I mean, yeah, for some, unfortunately, for sure, who passed away alone, it's heartbreaking and it's too late. Um, That said, it's never too late. The restrictions on visitors have been implemented on and off since March of 2020. Despite a report from the seniors advocate, which showed most of the transmission came from staff members and not family members, it was family members, still the ones left on the outside. The government moves this week, welcome news for Isabel McKenzie, but she says more needs to be done. We do still need uh, to address this inequity, if you will, around these essential visits, because we still don't have residents having a right to designate their own essential visitor. Across the country, deaths in long-term care peaked in the first wave in 2020, but deaths almost always trailed the community as a whole. Since vaccinations have been available, deaths inside facilities have plummeted, but the restrictions have been reapplied. The provincial health officer assuring the public in December that these latest measures were temporary. Family members and residents themselves say they've been stretched out too long already. It is fighting an uphill battle for me. But what about families who don't have those resources or don't know about them or how to access them? What about all the seniors who've applied for an essential visitor who have been denied? Outbreaks in long-term care no longer will be dealt with at a provincial level. Health officers can manage infections on a case-by-case level. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Still ahead, breaking through barriers. By no means am I like, this is great, but we are way better than we used to be. Vancouver actor Jesse Lipscomb on the change he sees in the film industry for black performers like him. And in sports, the off-pitch drama that almost derailed a very important soccer game for Canada in El Salvador. All right, Christy Gordon joins us now with a look at that inside slider sliding around a little bit here on the West Coast, Christy. (laughs) Yes, it was really tough to forecast this one, I have to say. Uh, As you well know, we've been waiting for the snow to fall all day long. A few flakes, but other than that, uh, we still do have the possibility of some wet snow across the region. But overall, this system really has has, uh, not transpired, partly because of the drier air mass down below, as well as the northern trajectory doesn't bring as much moisture as, say, a westerly flow. Here's a look, though, at how much we could see. Main event would be out through the Fraser Valley. They've had a couple centimeters of snow there, and still a snowfall warning is in place with up to 10 centimeters as possible. Otherwise, just wet snow in other regions. Now we're going to turn our attention to this next wave that's going to move on to the northern regions. We are concerned about a risk of freezing rain in areas like Terrace, especially later tomorrow, uh, along with heavy snowfall still overnight, and then again another wave tomorrow night. Uh, Areas in the interior will also see that wave. So uh, central interior regions as well as the north coast still expecting snow tonight, and then again that second wave moving in tomorrow night, bringing up to 25 centimeters of snow. 
snow. So significant impact across these northern regions, as you can see. Coastal regions in the north will see rainfall. Southern regions will see breaks of blue sky for uh, those uh, interior regions tomorrow. South coast, so a big change. So if we do see any snow at all, it would transition to rain. We are expecting a couple of wet days, but it looks like we clear out just in time for the weekend, which is great news. The iffy part would be how much sunshine when we, we see. And so I urge you to turn back in on Friday. We'll have more details on that one. Now, tonight's Central Windows weather window comes to you from Suyus. And he, uh, Trevor calls this fire and ice. Absolutely true here, as you can see. Uh, one thing a lot of people were wondering, why have the sunsets been so spectacular in the interior? One of the reasons is that uh, layer of cloud. And so when the sun drops low on the horizon, the actual sun uh, set colors reflect off of the bottom of the cloud cover. So thanks to everyone who shares photos with us. We're having a very good run of sunset photos lately, <laughs> for sure. Thanks a lot, Christy. All right, Squires here with a look ahead to sports. Yes, uh, Vanny Sartini was back at the uh, Whitecaps training center today after spending five days at his house with COVID. Boring, but also good sometimes to stay home for five days. So. He can't be on the field with the Whitecap players yet, but he can yell at them from the patio. Also tonight, Vancouver actor and activist Jesse Lipscomb on the encouraging signs he sees in the local film industry. We've got some competition for viewers tonight, Square. Possibly. Possibly. For people who like to watch things from El Salvador. Mm-hmm. Which you don't get a lot of on TV these days. Uh, Canada's men's soccer team almost has its ticket booked for the World Cup in Qatar. Now, they would have to completely collapse to miss the World Cup. But given how many heartbreaks this team over the years has inflicted on Canadian fans, it's never good to celebrate early. Always wait until it's for sure. Tonight, Canada is in El Salvador, a team they beat 3-0 last September in Toronto. So let's see how the starting 11 for the Canadians are doing tonight. Jonathan David is in the starting 11. Kyle Lahren will come off the bench if needed. Jonathan David with a chance. Oh, that was a great chance. But no, El Salvadoran keeper keeps it out late in the first half. It is scoreless. Vanny Sartini is back at the Vancouver Whitecats facility after staying away with COVID. Now, he cannot be on the field with the team just yet, but he can observe practice from afar and yell instructions. He says his bout with COVID actually wasn't that bad. It's not his traditional way of running a training session. A week after testing positive for COVID, Vanny Sartini is healthy and back again with the Caps overseeing their final week of practice in Vancouver before heading out to San Diego on the weekend. Luckily, I had only mild symptoms, so a couple of days of headache and sore throat and feeling very congested. And then I, then I stayed home for five days, so uh, Boring, but also good sometimes to stay home for five days. So it's Sartini was the only member of the Caps coaching staff or roster in COVID protocol. It's why he's still not allowed close contact with his players. And even though he was forced to stay away from the team and miss training for a week, he was still very much hands-on from a distance. I think I was able to function like 60% of my function with the team because I did all the 
training session preparation with the staff. I did all the training session review with the staff. I watched all the training session feed live, so I, I was able to see. And uh, in the in these six days, I also had uh, uh, meetings with uh, every players. We had lines meetings on uh, tactically going through videos. So I did a lot. We said it straight away when we knew he was out for a couple of days. We said that nothing is going to change. Uh, it's on us how we react to it. It could be like, oh, he's not here or just half here. We can we can do slow, but in the end, that's affecting us negatively as a as a team. So we do business as usual, and we will win as usual. The Vancouver Canucks are now in their week-long All-Star break, except for Thatcher Demko and Finn the mascot. They both have to go to Vegas for All-Star weekend. Uh, last night during the Canucks' 4-2 loss in Nashville, we saw the return of Vasily Podkolzny was held out of the last game so he could get a bit of a reset. And Bruce Boudreau thought the uh, game off helped him. Pods responded really well. He tried really hard. Uh, he was even emotionally involved uh, with the other team, which I hadn't seen in a while, uh, verbally. And he had a couple good chances to score. He's just, he's really gripping the stick twice, uh, really tight. And uh, hopefully he can settle down. And he will, by the time... In a couple of years, he'll be a really, really good pro. Right now, he's in a learning process. Former Major League pitcher and UBC pitcher Jeff Francis has been elected into the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame. Played 11 seasons in the, in the majors after he was at UBC. Mostly with Colorado. Pitched in the 2007 World Series against the Red Sox. Also played for the Blue Jays. Played for the Yankees. Played for the Athletics. Played for the Reds. And played for the Royals. Washington's NFL team has a new handle. After two years of being the team with no name, they are now the Washington Commanders. Not only was the name revealed this morning, the uniforms the Commanders will wear were also on display. The main color will be burgundy. That's the color they've always had. Uh, They canvassed fans with various nickname ideas. One of the most popular was Red Wolves, but there were too many trademark issues surrounding that one, so they landed on Commanders. Hmm. I don't know. It's okay. It, it leads to some maybe some master and commander jokes. Oh, yeah, or, yeah. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. We'll see. We were in command. The commanders were in command. I, it pretty much writes itself. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> you got lots of material, I'm sure. Thanks, Squire. Hey, there aren't a lot of guys like Jesse Lipscomb in Hollywood, but at least there are more who look like him. His story coming up next. Well, he's worked with some of the most famous actors in Hollywood, and the star is definitely rising for Vancouver's Jesse Lipscomb. He's making a name for himself as a writer, a producer, and activist, trailblazing for other racialized performers in the movie industry. Kylie Stanton reports. One day, when the glory comes... Singing. Speaking up. Or speaking out. Jesse Lipscomb knows exactly how to use his voice. In fact, it's what helped him land that first role. There was a cattle call and my mom saw it and said, hey Jesse, you should try this. They're looking for a teenager, African-American, loud and obnoxious. I think you'd be perfect. Get him down to the jail. Jail? At just 14 years old, Lipscomb was starring alongside Sidney Poitier playing his father figure on screen and becoming his mentor off of it. And we sat down for lunch, 
daily just talking about the industry and a black man in the industry. Since that time, I've always had this understanding of a responsibility that I have to take in the roles that I pick, a responsibility in the path that I choose, and understanding it's going to be more difficult for me. And so he's taken matters into his own hands, producing, writing, and directing, creating roles for minorities through a lens that better reflects society as a whole. Just putting uh, us on screen isn't enough. It's ensuring that who's putting us on screen, who's telling the story, and why is that story being told? So, you know, understanding everyone has a role in that. On a weekend leave. In recent years, he's not only made a name for himself as an actor, but also an activist. The this encounter capturing racial slurs being hurled at Lipscomb while filming a commercial in Alberta, the impetus for the Make It Awkward campaign, aimed at calling out racism. That grew and turned into more of a movement where we put on conferences, uh, we do speeches, created a game called Not That Funny that uncovers microaggressions, all of this stuff. But it really bled into the acting world as well because when I'm on set, you know, I take that with me and ensure that we have those discussions. And according to Lipscomb, things are changing. Oh, one day. But he plans to continue using his voice so that one day it'll be others can follow in the trail he's blazing. I understand the mission, I accept said mission, uh, and hopefully more people will be able to walk that path a little easier uh, after I've done it. Whoa. Kylie Stanton, Global News. They're old buddies too. Kylie did a, good, uh, did a good job with that story. And I said earlier in the newsroom, you guys, I'm sure you'll agree with me and a lot of people will, he's one handsome dude. And that is before I heard him, before I heard him sing. If you can sing well like he can, you become better looking instantly. <laughs> instantly. Yeah. Okay, uh, yeah. Deal with the weather as it comes. A little wet out there right now. Christy, thanks very much for your uh, insight into that. And thanks, everybody, for watching. Have a great night. We'll be back here tomorrow. <laughs>